If you have a copy of scripture, we're in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. Jonah chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 10. Again, of Jonah chapter 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Jonah is in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. And uh, actually not far before we get into the New Testament. Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. But the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I want you to... uh, Imagine with me for just a moment that you are a resident of Nineveh. You're going through your normal day. Perhaps you get up in the morning and you make your way to the well to draw some water. Or whatever your morning routine may be. You have no idea about this strange prophet named Jonah who's making his way to the city gates on this morning. You have no idea that as you go through your morning ritual that evening, you will be a person filled with grief over your sin and a person that is calling out for the mercy that comes from God before the sun even rises on the next day. In fact, the next day you will not even put on your normal clothes, but instead you will be so aware of your sinful condition that you will be clothed in sackcloth, which is a coarse, tough fabric similar to um, like a potato sack. Last week we spent some time looking at revival. We talked about how it is that revival begins. And uh, we talked about it begins by spreading the Word of God. We spoke of how it is that we need revival today in America. How the message that we proclaim needs to be simple and clear. And how we trust in the power of God. 
And when we think of revival, what exactly happens in revival? Well, in one respect, God breaks into our lives and we are made keenly aware of Him. In Jonah, we have this wonderful privilege of looking at a biblical account of a revival. We are able to study it and we're able to kind of look at it and we see the elements of a genuine spiritual experience that takes place in Nineveh. And what we see is what happens when God's Word begins to pierce the hearts of people and it begins to to touch the wills of the people. And what we see is what we should expect to happen through anointed witnessing and through anointed preaching. We should be encouraged to pray for revival, but we also see in chapter 3 the effect of the working of God's Spirit through God's Word. And So this morning, I want us to explore how it is that God's Word provides a great awakening. And let me be very clear. I do not think that this is relevant only for the time of Jonah. But I believe it's relevant for us today if we would just grasp it. So this morning I want to explore four ways that God's Word provides a great awakening. How it happened in Jonah's time and how God's Word can provide a great awakening even today. The first thing I want us to see from Jonah chapter 3 is this. God's Word gives illumination. God's Word gives illumination. In your house, if it is pitch black when you walk into a room, what is the first thing that you do? You, of course, flip on the light switch. When when I walk into, into my house at night, if if uh, the family's been gone all day and, and I walk in, the first thing I do is I flip on the light. I know the switch is to my right when I walk into the house. I know right where it's at. And so I just reach in there. Sometimes before I'm even in the door, I can reach in there and I can turn on the light and, and light up the room. Why do we do that? So we can see. That's why we turn on the light when it's dark. Because we want to be able to see. Well, God's Word is similar It is the the truth, and our minds are illuminated in a new way by God's Word. And that's exactly what happened in Nineveh. The people of the city of Nineveh woke up one morning assuming that it was just like every other day. It was just like every other morning. They're going to go through their day. They're going to do what they have always done. Nothing was any different. They didn't have any spiritual awareness that there was a, a that they didn't have any clue that there was a divine judgment that had stretched across the city of Nineveh and that judgment was ready to fall they had no clue that that was getting ready to happen their minds were blinded as we read in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They had no concerns about anything. Because they had no clue of the situation they were in. And suddenly this prophet, Jonah, 
speaks the words of God. And they find themselves in this terrible situation. It is as if, if a floodlight is turned onto their hearts and it's revealing their sin. They can no longer use the human justice system as their, as their measuring rod of good and evil because they now see that they are under divine judgment. They are now under God's judgment. They now know that there is a different standard and they understand their predicament and they are illuminated to their position and, and, and they are forced to go to God for mercy. You see, there's a total reversal in their thinking. They are no longer apathetic or complacent. Instead, their hearts are stirred and they pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. He calls us in question before the judgment of God. He awakens us to see the true state of our hearts. And we find ourselves convinced and convicted of our sin. The Word of God brings illumination. And the Spirit of God brings conviction. This illumination is glorious, but it's also terrifying. It exposes our hearts and the sin in our lives that, that we never even knew that we had. It is also glorious in the fact that we understand that we are comforted by God and the, the healing of our sinful condition comes only through Jesus Christ. God in His infinite knowledge and in His perfect wisdom not only brings that conviction to our hearts, but He also reveals His grace to us as he did to the Ninevites. And it takes, uh, it, it's like this medicinal salve that's put upon us. It's, it's a salve of his love on our sinful condition and it points us in the way that we need to go. He penetrates through our soul and spirit. This is what happened in Nineveh on a massive scale. This is what happens to the ministry of God's word even today. The Word of God brings illumination. It illuminates the, 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 uh, the, and the Spirit of God brings conviction, making lost sinners aware of their exceedingly sinful condition. That's why the psalmist declares in Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. God's Word brings illumination. It helps us see where we are in comparison to God's holy standard. But not only does God's Word bring illumination, but God's Word also convicts. In verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3, it says that the people of Nineveh believed God. Have you ever felt conviction in your life? Maybe you've done something. Maybe you've said something and then you you later regret it and you, you feel conviction. You think, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have said that. There are times when people listen to a preacher and they feel conviction. They listen to a preacher and they, they believe the preacher rather than God and they respond sometimes even with great enthusiasm to what the, what the preacher said. 
But here's the thing. Responding to the preacher, which happens a lot, responding to the preacher is not the same as responding to God's Word. They're not the same thing. Feeling conviction from a preacher is not the same thing as feeling the conviction of the weight of the Word of God. They're not the same. What happens when people respond to a preacher? Maybe they, they hear a good message or or something that, that, that the preacher says and they feel conviction. And, and what happens is they feel that conviction for a period of time and then they return to their old godless way. Just as fast as they responded to God in the first place, or responded to the preacher in this case, in the first place, the Ninevites had a recognition of God's own voice coming through Jonah's words. They didn't respond just to the preacher. They responded to the Word of God. They knew that God was speaking through the prophet Jonah, and they were stopped in their tracks. They were convinced, and they were convicted. However, what were they convicted of? They were convicted of where they were spiritually. They knew they were in spiritual danger. Jonah had warned them of their danger. He preached the message of God's law. He cries out to them, Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why? Why does Jonah cry out, Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown? What, what does that message even mean? Why would he say that? Because they've sinned and rebelled against God. Because they've fallen under the, the curse of God. They were under the wrath of God. It was, it was time to wake up from their spiritual slumber. They were sleeping. They had no idea of the existence of God. And here comes Jonah. Forty days and this city's going to be destroyed. It's a far cry from what we hear preached today. It's a tragedy that Christians no longer sound a warning to lost people, that they're in danger. It's a tragedy. Instead, we proclaim how God is okay with our sinful lifestyle. If only we would just trust in Him, everything will be okay. And we no longer talk and proclaim that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we need to recover that kind of proclamation that says we rebelled against a holy God and therefore we're under the curse of God and we're under the wrath of God and our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of preaching that runs through the Bible from Moses and the prophets to John the Baptist to the Lord Jesus Himself, the apostles preach this kind of preaching. This is the common theme. It's not about how you can have your best life now. It's not about how everything can be great for you. But it's this message that we have sinned against God and one day there will be a day of reckoning. We have to refuse to fall into the trap that says when we speak of God's judgment on those who are in their sin that we lack in love. You see, that's the trap today. Isn't that what we hear a lot of today? All you have to do is flip on a news channel or something like that, and you can hear that. You can't say that someone's sin. You can't call out sin in someone's life and say that they, that they are on their way to God's judgment because that's not loving. 
But you know what? That's a lie. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus often spoke of God's judgment. And He did not lack in love when He warned people of the judgment that was to come. It was a loving thing to do. To to warn them is a loving thing to do. To warn the sinner that they're headed in the wrong direction is the loving thing to do. To not warn them is unloving. To, to sit there and act like everything is okay is the most unloving thing you can do. You know, when I lived in southern Illinois, there was a place down there in Shawnee Forest called the Garden of the Gods. It is a really pretty and spectacular place. It offers great views. We went there when, when uh, uh, my boys were a lot smaller and I packed one of them on my back. Actually, maybe we only had one at that time. I packed them on my back. I don't know. I'm looking at my wife. But uh, I remember walking them, walking them on my back, and, and I was a little more fit at that time as well. But um, you can overlook this great landscape. And some of the points up on, on the rock face are over 100 feet in the air. It's a great place to hike. All kinds of people go there, and they, they hike around. They have fun. It's not the hiking that's the problem. You know what the problem is? People climb out on those rocks as I did, as I let my kids go out there with me. And the problem is, as, as they climb out on those rocks and on that rock face, they move closer and closer to the edge. And maybe, you know, we live in this day and age where people are trying to get selfies, right? And what do you do? You, you're trying to, you're backing up trying to get the perfect picture, and you're on the edge of a rock face. They don't pay close enough attention, and they slide right off. Every year, people fall in that park. In fact, in 2016, a Paducah, Kentucky woman fell 100 feet to her death. Every year, people fall there. Every single year. Now, let's say that there's a local. They're out there hiking. They've been there many times. They notice that there's a visitor there hiking. They're inching closer and closer to the edge. Would the local be unloving to shout out a warning? Would that be unloving? I mean, should they stop? Should that local stop and think, well, what if I offend that person if I shout out a warning to them? Should they stop and say, I wonder how they're going to receive this message if I shout out a warning to them. I wonder if they're going to receive them, receive that message I'm about to give them. Should they stop and think, I wonder how I can make this message, this warning. I mean, they're about ready to fall off the edge of the cliff. I wonder how I can make this message more appealing to them so that they would respond to the message that I'm going to give them to not fall off the edge of the cliff. That would be ridiculous, right? The only loving thing to do is to shout out a warning. To warn them. You're about to fall off the cliff. You're going you're gonna to plunge to your death. 
You're going to fall. That's the loving thing to do. Likewise, Christian, the loving thing for you to do is to shout out the warning. It's to say, you're in sin. We're all sinners. We're born in sin. Therefore, you're under the, the wrath of God. And if you die in your sin, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That is a warning. We, didn't, we shouldn't stop and Oh, I wonder how they're going to receive this. I don't know if they're going to... People are dying and going to hell. Christians are content to sit in pews in a church and call that the sum of our Christian life. Can you imagine how Jonah felt? He just returned from a near-death experience. Right? Belly of the fish. And he's now the warning sign to the Ninevites. If they went over the spiritual precipice on which they stood, there's no way back. It meant certain death. Listen, in the same way we have placed our faith in Christ, Christian, we recognized, we recognized our danger one day and we were convinced of it and we were convicted of it and we knew that we were headed to hell and we cried out to God, God, save me. With that, with that becoming a follower of Christ means that we, we were saved from going over the precipice. But with that comes an obligation to warn others and to do everything within our power to rescue them from spiritual disaster. No one will be convinced of their danger of hell if you and I are not convinced of it. If we're not convinced that hell is real and that people are really going there, then how are we ever going to convince anyone else? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay if hell must be filled. Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one person go unwarned or unprayed for. Christian, it's our job to call out the warning sign that people are dying and going to hell and we have to warn them. God's Word convicts. Oh, that we would proclaim God's Word and allow it to convict people of their need for a Savior. Thirdly, God's Word causes spiritual mourning. The people of Nineveh declared a fast. And they put on sackcloth. The king rose from his throne and he sat down in the dust. And they all called urgently on God. They became truly sorry for what had happened. They mourned because they did not know the blessing of the presence of God with them. They had lived so long without any thought of God. They longed for a change and the opportunity to demonstrate that they really desired a change in lifestyle was seen in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them Call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They felt the burn of their guilt. 
Their conscience cried out against them and they began to feel the weight of their sin of their previous lifestyle which was disobedient to God and indifference to His presence and glory. And they were experiencing what the Corinthian church would later on experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-11. For you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. God's Word brings spiritual mourning. And is that recognition that we have sinned against God and we have missed out on what God is and it should cause us to mourn, we must recognize that if there is not at least some degree of mourning in our hearts revealed by God's Word, then there will be little lasting work that will be done in our lives. Too often, we try to modify behavior. And Christians, we, we try to, so often we try to preach behavior modification. And half the time the behavior we try to modify in others is not even sinful behavior. You know, we say things, well, well you got to dress a certain way or you can't have tattoos or don't drink or don't do this, don't do that. And we, we kind of have all these rules. That we, that we want to make up. Like, it's like we, we, we take our list of rules and we insert them in our Bible. So we can say that they're there. Because we can't prove them. In fact, if we get pushed back, we can never prove our list of rules sometimes. We can prove what's scriptural, but we can't prove what's not scriptural. And, and we, we seek to modify people's behavior. Behavior modification never produces lasting change. Never. It doesn't do it. People modify their behavior all the time. It does not produce lasting change. Oh, but when God's Word gets a hold of us, it brings us to spiritual mourning and it produces lasting change. When we recognize truths through God's Word, it produces deep and lasting change because it's God's Word that changes us. It is eternal. Behavior modification is not. God's Word produces lasting change. Produces that mourning in our lives. Fourthly, God's Word produces faith and repentance. God's Word produces faith and and repentance. What was the result of Jonah's witness to Nineveh? What's it say? The, The people turned from their wicked ways. That is repentance. Not just regretting what they had done. Sometimes we confuse repentance and sorrow. It's one thing to be sorrow, be sorry for something. It's another to turn from your sin and abandonment. 
Repentance is turning from your sin. Now the repentance we see in Jonah chapter 3, it's not isolated from the accompanying exercise of faith. Some Christians believe that repentance is experienced before faith. In other words, you repent and then faith comes. Or you are you repent and then you're led to faith. However, I believe that that is a misunderstanding. And the reason why is because people often confuse conviction with conversion, sorrow for sin, turning with turning away from sin. Turning from sin is a hallmark of repentance. Furthermore, true repentance, true repentance accompanies faith. It doesn't cause faith. I like what John Murray says. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with saving faith. Look at the repentance of the Ninevites, and we can see faith that's expressed in verse 9. They said this, Who knows? God may turn and relent from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Granted, that's not mature faith. It was not even strong faith. It was not a full assurance of faith by any means. However, it was faith. It grasped something about Jonah's God even when the message appeared to be one of gloom. They saw him as a God who might have mercy. They trusted in his gracious character. They, they pleaded with God that he might be merciful to, be, to them. The Ninevites were not his people. They knew nothing of the covenant nor of the promises of God, but they hoped that God that this God who sent Jonah might be a God of love as well as a God of holiness. They knew themselves. They threw themselves on His character. They called upon the Lord that, that God might somehow show these repentant Ninevites some measure of grace. And we find this very thing throughout Scripture, Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's this biblical combination of repentance and faith. If we are to have a true understanding of who God is, then we dare not approach Him without repentance for sin. But we also must reach out for His grace. Jonah was brought to repentance by the divine warning of God, but only because he found God a divine, found in God a divine welcome. <clears throat> it was the same for the Ninevites. And look at the last verse of chapter 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Nineveh, saved. Revival had come. Repentance had been born. Real conversion took place. Because of the repentance and faith, there is joy and sorrow. <clears throat> Any conversion that lacks sorrow for sin and receives the word with only joy will be a temporary conversion and not a true conversion. Any conversion that is simply sorry for sin and does not have the joy for the pardon that will come 
lacking faith is a decision that will come to nothing and also be temporary. Nineveh heard God's word and it produced faith and repentance and provided a great awakening. Faith and repentance. Let's remind ourselves this morning in closing how it is that we've gotten here. How we've gotten to this place in Jonah. Because there's some great principles for us to learn. First, God had to begin to work in the life of Jonah so that he would then work through Jonah. Let us remember that God works in us often in order to work through us. However, that's no guarantee of revival as it was not a guarantee of a revival in Nineveh. However, it was an explanation that we need to crucify ourselves just like Simon Peter had to crucify self and the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem. We see how God sovereignly worked in, in His evangelism through the evangelism of Jonah just like, just like He did um, in Peter, He does in Nineveh. And just like He does today, God uses human instruments. He uses human instruments today. They are hand-built by Him. They are custom-built for His glorious purpose. Have any of you ever had something custom-built or custom-made? I don't know if you've ever done that, but what is the point of that? Why do we do that? Why do we say, well, I want to custom-made this? Or, you know, a lot of times uh, when we talk about customs, we talk about uh, vehicles. Now, I, I grew up a lot in Missouri, so there was people that had their custom trucks. Like They have a lift kit on them, and they're all jacked up and big old wheels on them, and they throw mud everywhere, right? I mean, that's what, that's what you love. That's what country people did. Custom made. Why? Why do we do that? So we can get exactly what we want, right? That's why we have something custom made, so we can get exactly what we want. If you go order a vehicle and you have it custom ordered, it's so you can get exactly what you want. Why? So it will do exactly what you want it to do. That's why you do it. You know God does that with you. Custom made. Custom built. To do exactly what He wants you to do. For His glorious purpose. You're custom made. Custom built for His glorious purpose. The diamonds of spiritual service are always found in the depth of spiritual experience. This is so true in revival. That is, that is what... One of the great Welsh revivals that took place had as their motto, bend the church and save the people. Bend the church and save the people. And church, here is my challenge for you this morning, for everyone that's here. It's time for us to be bent. To be broken for God's service. It is time to say we're... To, to, to say to God, wherever you call me to go, God, I will go. 
Who you tell me to speak to, I will speak to. Wherever you lead me, God, I will follow. It's time to get over our silly little religion that we put in our silly little bubble where we complain about silly little things like decorations and music and and the preaching and things like that and start winning people to Christ. It is time to bend for the lost and be broken for them. It is time to look over our city of Washington, Illinois and be broken. It's time to look over our state and be broken. It's time to look over our nation and be broken. Our world and be broken and weep that God would send a revival to our place. Don't we understand that too often the sin that Jonah had is the sin in our own hearts. I'm not going, God. I'm not telling them about the gospel. They don't deserve it. The sin of Jonah must become the sign of Jonah. We talked about that a few weeks back. What is the sign of Jonah that we put to death? Our own selfish desires and what we want. And we understand that through our death, God will bring life. Why don't we see a revival today? Why don't we see great awakening? Because we won't put ourselves to death. We won't do it. If you truly want to see the power of God poured out, you put yourself to death. mean physical death. Spiritual death. You say, God, I will lay it all down for you. And you carry God's word into the world. And then you will see the beginning of revival. And you will see a great awakening. So how about it, church? Are you bending? Are you broken? Have you put to death self? Are you carrying God's word into a world that desperately needs it? Because it gives illumination. It convicts. It causes spiritual mourning. And it produces faith and repentance. And that's lasting change. You doing that? Or say, Pastor, I'm I'm not doing those things. I'm not broken. I don't weep for the lost. In fact, I don't even care about them that much. I challenge you this morning to repent. 
repent. Be broken for the lost because they need Jesus. Oh, that we'd go out and warn them. Maybe this morning for the first time. God's word made sense. You realize that you're a sinner in need of a savior. This moment we're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love to tell you how Jesus came to save you from your sin. Or maybe you just need to come to the altar and pray or pray in your pew this morning. Maybe you need to come grab my hand and say, Pastor, will you pray with me? Maybe you felt conviction today. Maybe you realize that you need to take God's word with you to a world that desperately needs it. That you need to be broken for the lost to see the beginning of revival. I'll be standing down front as we sing a song. I want to encourage you to, to come and respond to the words that you heard this morning. Let's close with prayer.